You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Exodus chapter 20. Welcome to you if you're watching online. We're uh, so happy that you're with us uh, this morning or whenever you might be watching this. And uh, thank you for uh, being with us. Pray that uh, what we're covering today will be of an encouragement to you uh, as you watch as well. Well, what we've been doing for a number of weeks now is walking verse by verse through the book of Judges. And uh, we're going to take a little break from that. And we're going to come back and finish the book. But before we do that, we're going to take a little break and we're going to talk about the theme of idolatry, which can kind of sound like a very distant, uh, you know, foreign kind of an idea or something that happens in another part of the world today. Uh, Maybe a topic that doesn't seem very relevant to us, but I trust as we look at this week in and week out, we're going to see that it is uh, very relevant for all of us. As we've walked through the book of Judges, uh, here's what we've seen. Uh, The Bible is one single story, and we are at the place in the story where God is um, settling his people, uh, just after settling them, in the promised land. And the reason he has settled them there is so that they will be uh, his people worshiping him Uh, and to bring glory to him and to be a witness to the nations around them. But what they're doing is they're looking at the gods around them, and they are choosing so frequently to serve them, specifically uh, the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth, uh, who they believe will give them what they want, what they need. So rather than looking to their god, uh, Yahweh, the god of the Bible, they are uh, looking to these gods to give them things like children and to bring rain and to give them crops and to help with their, uh, their farm animals' fertility and that sort of a thing. And as we've seen that week in, week out, they, they just are driven to go to whatever source will provide security, help, what they really need. And as we've done that, we've seen that the reality is that it's not just that people uh, in a primitive society are given to idolatry. Rather, the idea of idolatry is a primary biblical way of understanding the battle we all face as believers in Christ to be faithful to him. In other words, idolatry is sort of an overarching, not the only one, but an overarching Uh, sort of paradigm or way of understanding the battle between serving God and serving any uh, other number of things. And this is something that we are all uh, challenged by and that we battle today as well. Because we are tempted to look in all kinds of places, truth be told, we're tempted to look in all kinds of places for security, for meaning in our lives, for happiness, for significance. We can look so many places. And so we're going to see in the next coming weeks that we too, we don't have Baal and Ashtaroth perhaps in our culture, but we have any number of uh, cluster of cultural gods that we all feel uh, free, sadly, to run toward. And, And the reality is that we run toward them Uh, perhaps more frequently than we know. So to start this off today, we'll be looking at different texts throughout this series, Uh, but today I'm going to start with the Ten Commandments 
and look at the first commandment, and it's in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's word to us today. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the context of this verse, this is the Ten Commandments. They're pretty familiar, the Ten Commandments. Uh, The context of this verse is God has brought his people out of Egypt. That's what he refers to in the first verse or the second verse. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. So this all happens before Judges where we've been studying. So he brings them out of Egypt and now uh, he is gathering them and he's giving them a law. He's giving them his laws through Moses. And the purpose of these laws are to show them how they are to live. They're in many ways preparation for getting into the land that they're now in in the book of Judges. So it's preparation for going into the land because he's showing them how they're to live for him and how they are to build a, a just society that will stand out in their world as something that is different from the nations around them and will provide a compelling, uh, a compelling example of how God works for his people and how God's people serve him and how God's people flourish in a world where they are obeying his law. And so he is setting them up uh, to, to, to be a witness to the nations around them. Now, we know, as we said in Judges, they're not being a witness. They're being just like the nations. But that's what this law is about. What is pleasing to the Lord? What honors the Lord? And what is a testimony to a watching world? And you'll notice one thing that's very important. I'm not going to camp on this, but just this is a, this is a key insight, that before we get the first uh, command, which is you shall have no other gods before me, verse 3. Before we get that, we get what's commonly called the prologue, which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And so what we see is God is reminding them of what he has done for them before he says anything to them about what they are to do for him. The, the basis of their relationship, the basis of their covenant with God is what God has done for them in freeing them. They never could have freed themselves, and yet God has freed them. So I brought you out of the land precedes you shall not. I brought you out precedes you shall not. And that is the way the Christian life is to be lived, that the good news of what God has done, we call that the gospel, that the gospel precedes the law. Another way of saying that would be uh, our obedience is always a response to what he's done for us by his grace. Or another way to think of that is we don't obey to be accepted. We're already accepted and thus we obey. In other words, the law is not, have no other gods before me, and if you really master that, if you really master that, you could be okay with me. No, the the passage is, you could do nothing to free yourself, and I rescued you from slavery. Therefore, because of my love, empowered by my grace, respond to me with a life, and the New Testament would say, live in a manner worthy of your calling, or worthy of the gospel. We don't do it to win his approval. We already have it. And idols don't work that way. Idols, you must act in a certain way to win their approval. That is the only way. So idols are about us getting our way 
uh, through other powers, through doing what it takes to get our way. The Christian faith is God has done everything for us, and we respond with faith. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at two things. What does this command forbid, and what does it require? Well, what it forbids is fairly obvious, right? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So here's what it forbids. You shall have no other gods before me. He freed them. God freed them from a land of darkness. Egypt was filled with gods. As a matter of fact, Pharaoh himself was considered a god. So he freed them from this dark world so that he could bring them into a land where there would be only one god. Only one god worshipped him. And so now he's saying, you are free to, uh, in a, to establish a culture by my power uh, in a land to be a people that worship me alone. That was always their calling. But he's saying that, that this is the first commandment. No other gods before me. Well, this raises an immediate question. Because if God says you're to have no other gods before me, is he sort of acknowledging implicitly that there are other gods? Are we monotheists or polytheists? Or are there other gods? Because if he says, you shall have no other gods for me, it certainly uh, we could infer from that that he is one of many gods and he's to be top god. Is that the way it really is? Well, the scripture is clear on this. Throughout the Bible, uh, the Bible makes the claim that God alone is God, that there is only one God. In in Deuteronomy 6, this was repeated regularly by the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And other places this is affirmed as well, really clearly in the New Testament, because foreign gods, idols, it's not just an Old Testament deal, it's a New Testament deal as well. And so when Paul uh, addressed churches in the New Testament, idolatry frequently came up specifically in Corinth, and uh, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he says there are many so-called gods, but there really is only one God. Sometimes in, the, in Corinth in particular, uh, there were demonic powers that were animating uh, these so-called gods. But there is only one God and many so-called gods. So why does he say to have no other gods before me if they don't exist? Why doesn't the first command just say, hey, you guys, there are no other gods. So let's just, you know, it's just me. Uh, just worship the true God. Why does, why does the Bible always talk about, we read the verse to open the whole service. He is the king above all gods. Why does it talk that way if there are no really other gods or really other any other idols? I like what Al Mohler said. He said, the idol is a nothing, but it is a dangerous nothing. It is a nothing, but it is a dangerous nothing. And here's the reason that is, is that all of us were created uh, with a longing for the transcendent. In the very nature of our being, there, every person, regardless of what we believe, there is a desire in us for something outside of us. 
there, we, we, we have this sense of a need, a longing deep down for the transcendent. We were created to worship, to adore, to serve, to know, and to enjoy God. That's what we were made for. That's how we were made. But when the first humans rebelled against God in the garden, uh, they sought to be their own gods. And since that moment, they wanted to be like God. So since that moment, we have been chasing the gods of our own making. God substitutes. In other words, we are looking for all kinds of things outside of ourselves. We are looking for transcendent power. We are looking for things and people and ideologies outside of us to rescue us, to fulfill us, to secure us to give us significance. So if we look away from God, we will look somewhere else. We will not live in a vacuum. We will look somewhere else. So even though there are no other gods, we empower ourselves, other gods, other idols, and thus, though they are not a thing, they are a dangerous nothing. As Moeller says, anything we're going to see in this series, and I'm going to be more specific here in a moment, but anything can be an idol for us, which is what led John Calvin to famously comment that our hearts are idol factories. That is, the human heart creates uh, places and people and things and ideas, places to run and trust, people to find our fulfillment in. Ideas and images, uh, images, self-image, images to be happy in. We are always creating something to hope in. We're always creating something to put our trust in. And thus, our hearts are idol factories. I'm going to give you a definition of idolatry. This is very simple, and and I think it's uh, I think it's one that, in like a sentence or so, really captures the idea. It's from the New City Catechism. Uh, The New City Catechism is a very uh, easy to understand catechism that's much more recent. I I can't remember when this was written. Early 2000s, or I don't really know exactly. I don't remember exactly. But anyway, question 17 says this: What is idolatry? Answer. Idolatry is trusting in created things rather than create the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. Those are four really good categories to think about. Where is my hope? What am I hoping in? What am I hoping will happen? Where, what makes, where's my happiness? What am I chasing to make me happy? What makes me feel significant? Where do I find my significance? And where, what makes me feel safe, secure? Where am I chasing security? Now, that, that opens up a world of possibilities, which will take the next number of weeks to think about. Uh, biblical counselor and author David Pallison, who is now with the Lord, died not that long ago, wrote the following, An idol is anything that replaces God. Anything that replaces God, and that's why it's pervasive in the Bible. Not just because Israel is among nations that have totems and uh, rituals and sacrifices, and not just because that's the world they live in, but because anything that replaces God can be an idol. And even the Bible itself uh, doesn't 
doesn't just point to things like statues or rain gods or sun gods, uh, you know, the god of the uh, gods of the elements. It points beyond that. For instance, in Ezekiel fourteen three, it says, "These men have set up idols in their hearts." Ezekiel fourteen three. These men have set up idols in their hearts. Uh, the prophet there is saying that idolatry is not just a matter of going through a liturgy in an idol's temple. It's not a matter of burning incense to some uh, deity. We set these up in our heart. They're motivated by our desires. Uh, our, this is the heart of idolatry. It comes from within us. And that's why there are endless possibilities um, for what can be our God's. The Bible addresses a few besides like ancient gods like Baal. Baal is a very common one. But the Bible does address a few other places in the Bible. Uh, there are, it does address uh, other gods that are not like Baal, um, the god of the storm or something like that, but are, that, are, that are gods that are more heart-driven. We set up idols in our heart. For instance, Paul says in Philippians 3, he's describing people that oppose the gospel. He says, their destiny is destruction Their God, little g-god, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So he's saying that that they seek what pleases their stomach. He's describing these people that oppose Jesus, and he's saying these are people that are enslaved. Rather than worshiping Christ, they're enslaved to their natural appetites. So what rules over them is, what is their God, what, what, is, what is the power over them is natural appetites, their stomach. Didn't know this was going to be so pointed, right? I was like, oh boy. Uh, Colossians 3, Paul says this, we're to put to death covetousness or greed. Sometimes it's translated greed. We're to put, together, uh, we're to, put to death covetousness or greed, which is idolatry. So he's not saying there's a God called covetousness. He's not saying these people, you know, these people in this city worship the God of greed. He's not saying that. He's saying that idolatry can be not just a statue or a formalized religion, but an empowering desire within me where I'm looking beyond myself for something to, in this case, perhaps bring me security uh, or bring me meaning or significance, which is stuff and things. It, it, It is greed. It is money. Um, covetousness is the desire for what God has not provided for me. So for covetousness to be an idol in my life, it would mean this, that I'm living with that sense that my hope and my happiness comes from something I don't have that God has not given me, uh, that maybe my neighbor has. In the commandments, we're not to covet our neighbor's stuff and, uh, or his fam- or his relationships, his wife, it says, for instance. So Uh, It's this idea that I need this to be fulfilled. I need this to be secure. If I only had this, which God has not provided for me, then I would be happy. That's idolatry. That's what the New Testament defines as idolatry. So when we read those kind of statements, we go, oh, yeah, this isn't just something that happened two, 3,000 years ago from primitive people who had to come up with some imaginary thing to understand the universe. So they created all the, the sons of God. Uh, or whatever it is, the rivers of God, the mountain God, uh, the beauty God, the sex God, whatever it is. Um, no, th- this is something that's very real for both of us, for all of us. With this first commandment um, and with idolatry in general, 
the problem is not simply breaking rules. So sometimes we think the rules, and particularly the Ten Commandments, we can think that sin is just sort of breaking the rules that God has given us. But when we see this first commandment, which is the basis for all the others, you shall have no other God before me, or some, it could be translated beside me, besides me. No other God before me or besides me. Uh, when, we, when we think about that, what we're really talking about is the problem is not just rule breaking. The problem is our worship. Idolatry is a worship issue, and we get that when we talk about Baal. Because when we talk about Baal, they're offering a sacrifice to Baal, or they're doing some kind of ritual or some kind of chant or incantation or act uh, at a, at a, at a, even sometimes at a temple or something like that. So it very much looks like a religion. Uh, so so it, it is true that idolatry is worship. But it's not just worshiping a foreign god down at a temple. It is a heart worship that chases something, trusts in, hopes in something besides God. And the reason this happens is because we are all created as worshipers. We're all created to have a relationship with God. Everyone worships, and it is impossible not to worship. You can't not worship. (laughs) It's impossible to to be a non-worshiping person. Well, I'm just not a religious person. No, everybody's a religious person. It's just what are you religious about? What's your religion? What's important to you? It's a worship issue, idolatry, and that's why it starts off. Have no other God before me. No other gods. You shall have no other gods. Your worship is devoted to be devoted to me alone. It's a worship issue. And, and when we think about our hopes and our dreams and our security, we'll realize that we're always investing worship. We're always investing a heart desire. We're always investing our passion and our longing somewhere, even in ourselves. We're going to look at that next week. We may not bow to a statue, but we all have daily liturgies, daily liturgies that reveal our worship lives. You know, one good question is, how do I know what I worship besides God? I'm talking, about, I'm talking to Christians here, people who really are converted and really do believe in Jesus. We still have other gods besides him at times. And how do we know what we really worship? Uh, in a book written a number of years ago called The Air I Breathe, Louis Giglio wrote the following. He said, so how do you know where and what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. At the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. Sure, not many of us walk around saying, I worship my stuff, I worship my job, I worship this pleasure, I worship her, I worship my body, I worship me. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speak louder than our words. In the end, Our worship is more about what we do than what we say. So idolatry starts in the heart with our heart motives, but it works itself out in our daily practices and and ultimately in the patterns of our 
lives. Now, I don't want this message nor this series to be about uh, an idol hunt where everybody's just doing huge undercover digging and we're all just looking inward and uh, trying to, you know, uh, excavate the idols of our heart. Uh, That is not a healthy environment. I've been in that environment. I've helped lead in that environment at points, and that is just not healthy. The big win isn't identifying the idols of my heart. The big win is to be able to identify the sinful motivations of my heart and run to Christ and uh, be, uh, you know, be awed by him and walk in freedom in him. But having said that, it is helpful um, because this is a very new concept for, for many of us. It is helpful to say, what are some kind of trigger questions that can help us uh, evaluate our hearts and understand what motivates me? You know, Paul said, their God was their stomach, or greed is idolatry. So how do you know if your stomach, I'm sorry, their stomach was their God. How do you know if your stomach is your God? How do you know if greed drives you? How do you know uh, what drives you? Um, So I'm going to run through a few questions that I think can be helpful for us to think about. Along these, uh, along these lines, and then we'll talk about what the, briefly what the command requires, and then we'll jump into some specific idols uh, beginning, beginning next week. One way to think about it is, what are your if-onlys? I'll put that in quotes, if-onlys. These are the kind of things where you say, I would be happy if only this happened. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't be anxious and fearful if only this circumstance I, I, I would be content, I would be at peace, if only fill in the blank. I know I will have made it, and I can rest and relax knowing that I'm successful, if only this happens. What are your if-onlys? What are your fears? Fears are often sort of an inverted kind of desire or craving in our lives that reveals what we really trust in. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Fear is something that works in our hearts to sort of prophesy oftentimes a false future. This is what's going to happen down the road. And, And we think if that happens, if I'm subject to that thing or if I don't get that thing or if this circumstance or if that person, I don't want that to happen and so I'm fearful of that happening. Uh, I saw this in a very specific way in my own life very recently. I was meeting this last week with a, in a triad, which is a couple other guys. I'm the third, three of us that um, meet together and uh, try to help one another uh, in our walk with the Lord, encourage and strengthen one another. And I was just sharing with the guys how I, what recently happened to me, which was an unexpected, uh, perhaps very significant expense has been dropped into my lap. Into my lap. I'm not laughing. Into my lap. Uh, has to do with a home repair. And those who know me, I have had <laughs> so many two homes with foundation damages had to be. Anyway, I could tell stories of how this is where the Lord is always getting my attention. Things that happen in my houses where floods and anyway. So I had this thing, and I've, I've been very worried about it and anxious about it because it's going to be potentially a very large financial outlay. But what I told the guys is what I realized about it was it wasn't just taking, you know, a chunk uh, a large percentage, 
all, I don't know, of my savings and moving it into this repair. It, it wasn't just that, but it's at that moment, once I do that, I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable because I don't have my cushion. I've lost cushion. I've lost safety net. I've lost, uh, you, know, you know, and so I'm, I'm vulnerable. Now I'm going to have to trust the Lord. And I fear that. I don't want to trust the Lord now. I don't want to trust the Lord in retirement. I don't want to trust the Lord for money ever. I want to have such a great, such a great cushion that I am secure in my cushion. And it revealed, what am I really trusting in? Not, not that it's okay to be, you know, oh, I don't want to spend all that on a repair. Okay, that's fine. But it's, what did it reveal in my heart? What I feared, the vulnerability I feared, re- revealed the idol that I crave, security that I can touch and feel in front of me. Whose affirmation or approval do you want? That can reveal an idol. Is it your boss? Is it your parents? Is it your children? A sibling? Maybe it's friends? Whose approval? Whose admiration? Whose affirmation do I want? We tend to think that peer pressure is a big issue for teenagers. That's just not true. It's your whole life. And I know there are old people, and I'm becoming one, who don't, I don't care what anybody thinks. Okay, I get that. But, but we care at some level about, about some people, what they think. As you get older, you just care about fewer people, what they think, but you still care about somebody. What role do you desire or need? We can find our identity not in Christ but in a role. What is the role you need? What is the role you desire that if you need that role to feel significant? It could be your job, your title, your status. What makes you feel secure? I just gave an example. could be money. could be your health. Here's what we saw in 2020 and did a whole series on politics because of it. It can be politics. I will feel safe if this is happening in my country, and I will feel unsafe if this doesn't happen. God is on the throne regardless. We talked about that. What are you driven to achieve? What must you achieve to feel okay about you? Or welcome to Frisco. What must your children achieve for you to feel okay, not about them, but about you? That, that is a driving force in our culture. My kids must achieve, and so we will be doing stuff 24-7 so that they achieve. The only thing they won't achieve is rest because we're going to push and drive them. What image do you want others to have of you? Do you want to be thought of as intelligent, attractive? Do you want to be known for having a certain marriage or a certain family? What, what image do you want to put out there? What do you put out on your social media feed? I want people to know this about me. It's probably not what you put out there because many of us are savvy enough not to put out there what we really want everybody to see about us because it looks like we're bragging. That's okay. It's what that was in your heart that you didn't put out there. That's the issue too. That's our God. What pleasure do you chase, especially when you're hurting? In other words, where is your sanctuary? That's a religious word, sanctuary. Where do you go for relief? The Bible says God says that God, the Bible says that God is our refuge and strength. So where do you go for your refuge in troubled times? The refrigerator, the internet, pornography, 
entertainment? What pleasure do you seek to dull the pain? What brings you relief? Alcohol? Hours of checking out? Playing video games? Shopping? We all have places we go. Instead of God being my refuge and my strength, I've got this other God that is tangible and I can feel and brings me instant relief, even if it's just for a small period of time. What about sex? Is sex a God for you? Is it a gift? You thank your God for the gift? Or is it taking the place of being a God? How's your thought life there? What do you complain about? What we complain about is what matters to us. It's what we want. I read one author said this, whining reveals what has power over us. When I'm whining, I'm saying, that's the thing I must have. I'll have a voice of praise when that changes, a voice of gratitude when that changes. But right now, we can see this in little kids. Somebody takes the two-year-old's toy, At that moment, the kid wants the toy more than everything else. We do the same thing all the time, but it's just called, you know, adult complaining. What infuriates you? Anger can be a response to not getting what I demand. I must have this. It's really oftentimes the me God. The me God is I have a script for my life. I battle this constantly. I have a script for my life, and something has intruded into my script. That wasn't supposed to happen. I need a problem-free existence. I need to be able to accomplish certain things, and that stops me. I need to feel good. I need everybody to love me. I've got this plan for my life. But it's funny. I'm always at the center of that plan. That's idolatry. What are your dreams? I mean, it's good to have dreams. It's good to have a vision for your life. But when you daydream, when you're free to daydream about your life, are God's plans and purposes are involved in that? Or is it just, this is what I want for me? Many kinds of idols are obvious. Maybe they're obviously sins. But other times, idols can be good things that we make ultimate things. Family, that's a good thing. Work, that's a good thing. Rest, that's a good thing. Sex, that's a good thing. But when we take good things and we want them too much so that we're willing to compromise other areas to get what we want, then it has become an idol. So what does the passage forbid? Having any other gods, any other idols before Yahweh, our God, before our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does the commandment require? And I'm going to be briefer here. God lays out a restriction, no other gods, but we'd miss the glory of this commandment if we don't consider what it requires. Here's here's what it says. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, uh, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me because you have me. You have me. You have the God who spoke into existence everything that is. You have the God-man who came to earth 
and gave his life for you on a cross and rose from the dead. We celebrated last Sunday in a specific way with the power over death who's given us his spirit to live within us, has given us truth. You got truth on your lap this morning, who is with us, will never leave us or forsake us, who has joined us to his people and has given us a purpose for life where we are building towards what he will bring in the future, a new heavens and a new earth. We have everything in him. That's why he said, I delivered you. You never could have delivered yourself. No earthly God could deliver you. But I delivered you. Don't chase other gods because you've got me. It's not merely a call to steer clear from what is cheap and false, but to love and enjoy the one true king who's given himself for us, who loves us, who is more than we ever could imagine. I've weighted this sermon very heavily on idols because it's an introductory sermon, but I want you to hear that the big point and where my passion lies is in the glory of Christ and the joy of thinking, how can I turn to him? How can I grow in love for him? How can I grow in knowing him? How can I treasure him and enjoy him so that I see that all this other stuff over here is cheap counterfeits that do not satisfy, but only enslave me, only lie to me, only cheat me. The Westminster Larger Catechism has a great statement about what, this is the question it asks, question 104. What are the duties required in the first commandment? So in other words, don't chase gods, but what should you do? It says the duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when anything he, when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. Our hearts are always worshiping, and this is what it looks like. What do I think about? What do I meditate about? What am I passionate about? Who do I give honor to? What am I choosing? What am I loving? What am I desiring? All those things, we can, do, we can direct that towards him and find joy and life the way it was created to be. As mentioned before, our hearts are always worshiping. So we don't just stop worshiping idols, but we grow in our love for God. Uh, There's a very famous sermon. It was preached by a Scottish pastor named uh, Thomas Chalmers in the 1800s. And he preached a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I could have never pastored then. My sermon title is What is Idolatry? That stinks compared to the expulsive power of a new affection. But there you go. Okay, so anyway, this is what he said. The way to disengage the heart from the love of one object is to fasten it to another. It's not about exposing the worthlessness of the old affection, the idol, but exposing the worth and excellence of the new one. In other words, what he said was, you, if you want to be free from idols then get a clearer vision of Jesus. 
And as you love and treasure Jesus, he will displace the idols of your heart. It's, getting, it, it's coming back to our first love. It's restoring our knowledge and experience of Christ. It's treasuring him such that our, our desires find joy and fulfillment and meaning and significance in him and in his calling upon our lives. In a book which I quoted from several times last Sunday, it's called The Problem of Jesus. It's written by Mark Clark, and he tells an earthy story of what it means to replace one love for another, which is for us in this example, replacing idols with uh, our love for Christ. This is what he said. I started smoking when I was in eighth grade. I stopped shortly after I got married when I was 23 years old. I smoked for 10 years of my life, and I loved it. You could tell me daily I was going to die of cancer. It did not matter. You could warn me. You could work on my behavior. The government puts pictures on cigarette packages of bleeding brains and rotting teeth. He's in Canada. I don't know if they do that here, but that's what he said. But that never deterred me. So bleeding brains and rotting teeth, that never deterred me. I would go into the store and say, give me one pack of donkey teeth and one dead brain. You know how I quit? I fell in love with a girl who hated smoking. And over time, my love for smoking was trumped by something stronger, my love for her. So I quit. That's the expulsive power of a new affection in action. My tendency toward idolatry didn't disappear, but the object of my affection shifted in priority. You can't just tear down idols. You have to replace them with something you love more. The human heart abhors a vacuum. So when Jesus calls us to love God with our whole heart, souls, minds, and strength, he is telling us not to run away from something, but toward something that is better. That is the only way to be truly free. The way to be free is to cultivate our love in Christ, to to be gripped by the gospel, what he has done for us, so that we find our joy in him. I'm going to read you one verse and we're done. If you're a Christian today and you're finding yourself struggling in any number of areas um, with idolatry, there's a great verse in the book of Revelation written to the church of Ephesians, Ephesus, Uh, who had left their first love. I've always been struck by this. This is what Jesus said to them. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Okay, so you've, you've left the priority of Christ as your God and looking elsewhere. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. It's interesting. Repent is a hard attitude and then take on new liturgies. Do what, what was it like? Think back, what was it like when Christ was so real to me, when the Spirit was alive in my heart, where the words of Scripture jumped off the page, where I wanted to be around Christian folks, where I wanted to share my faith? Think about a time when it was like that. Give God your heart, ask him to renew it in the gospel, repent, and go do what you did then, is what he says. Ask for heart change, but adopt new liturgies. What were you doing? Were you with Christians? Were you reading the scripture? Were you up early? Who were you hanging with? What were you doing in your spare time? 
turn afresh. Let's, let's pray as we close. And I'm going to ask us just to be quiet for a moment. And maybe when I was going through that list, something j- jumped out at you. Where you saw, I'm really leaning, I'm really trusting, I'm really hoping somewhere else. Well, take that in your heart right now to the Lord. We're just going to be silent for a moment with just music. And I'm going to ask you to give that over to the Lord, to repent, to turn from that and turn to him, to ask for his help in renewing, in a, in a renewed heart, followed by renewed practices that cultivate love for Christ. What is it? Give it to him now and turn from it. Now, having turned from that, confess your love to Christ. Thank him for who he is and what he's done. Tell him of how glorious he is, how you need no one but him. Reflect on his power and love and mercy to you. Express a heart of love to the Lord in repentance. Now ask him to help you. Ask him to help you walk out and fresh patterns. Maybe you need to talk to somebody about this and get help. Maybe you need to confess something that nobody knows about. Maybe maybe you need to return to what you did at first, whatever that is. Ask for his power to do that. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.